All right. Good morning, big, beautiful world. <laughs> it's a really, really good to see you. And if you're new, if this is your first time, so glad that you're here. And I want to welcome everybody at our Legacy Campus as well as our other campuses like Sloan Creek, Richardson, Woodbridge, uh, NS Pinal, everybody online right now, wherever you are. Uh, today we're continuing this series called Big Beautiful World. And the series is designed to help guide us to engage our world in a better way. And you'll see that how that plays out today, because this is a big, beautiful world. When you look at our planet, it's not such a bad planet to live compared to the rest of them. Right. I mean, it's a big, beautiful world. And we're going to take some picture or we're going to like zero in on some parts of our planet that are really beautiful. And feel free to just shout out, make some noise. If this is the kind of place you'd like to go this summer, you don't have to wait to see them all to vote. You can vote for all of them if you want. That's fine. So here's the first one. South Pacific. Sound good? Here we go. Yeah, not bad. Right. Or uh, for some of this is the Arctic. Actually, it's cold, but beautiful. Um, And then uh, some of you are mountain people. Right. Like my kids are have become mountain people. So, you know, they're there somewhere. Um, And then here's another beautiful spot on this planet. Bryant Denny Stadium in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. (laughs) Roll Tide. Praise Jesus. And, uh, okay, I'll move on from there. Um, but you really, if you zero in, right, it is big, beautiful world, and it's majestic and all this stuff. But you can also look at the world from another perspective. And that other perspective, if you look at it from a world of people, you realize it can also be a really ugly world in terms of how people can treat each other. And I was going to show a bunch of pictures in juxtaposition of the pretty ones that we saw of the ugliness of this world. If you look at it from that perspective of racism and even genocide and violence and injustice and refugees and displacement and all the cruelty that can happen in this world and realize, man, this is is a messed up world, right? It could be really ugly. And I think all of us, you know, I was going to show those pictures. I thought, well, why ruin our summer, you know? And I don't think I have to rub our faces in it. I, I think we know, right? You can imagine some of the pictures I might use anyway, because we feel that. I think we feel how divided our world is, and it feels like the divisions are just growing deeper and deeper. And, and, I, and I would guess that pretty much all of us in this room are the kind of people that would say, man, I, I don't know what to do about that, but I sure hope it gets better. And I'd love to think I could be part of making it better, that all the divisions that are that are deepening. I would love to be the kind of person that can move from building, you know, divisions to to building bridges and connections of understanding and love and mutual respect. Like, I'd love to think I can make a difference, but it's so overwhelming. And so today we're going to talk about how God invites us to be part of this big thing that he's doing to do just that. Kind of his approach to a splintered uh, world. And, and what I'm talking about is this new kind of community that Jesus came to bring. It's called church. Have you heard of that? And it's this new kind of community that is way, way bigger than even a church will naturally develop. And so we're going to talk about what God wants the church to be. All of us are welcome to help build it, help create it. And then also, even if you're not involved in a church, kind of, hey, what kind of people uh, do we have to become to really become the kind of people that become more of the solution, not the problem? Now, this is one of our DNA statements as a church. Our DNA statements 
are, hey, what is the unique thing that God is doing in our church? What is he calling us to be? It's not that we're there yet. We're on our way there. And one of our DNA statements relates to diversity and unity. And that is we are a salad, not a soup. Now, if you're new to our church or new to that statement, we're a salad, not a soup. It's like, what does that mean? Now you look at it and you're like, oh, thank you. That's very clear. I get it. You know, it's like, it's not clear. Um, you know, what does it mean? We're a salad, not a soup. Cause if you're like me, you're like, do we have to be a salad? Cause I don't like salad. Can we be a hamburger? Cause that's good. And, uh, or even with soup, it's like, okay, it may not be my favorite, but it's better than salad. And, uh, so if you're like me, what does this mean? Well, we're a salad, not a soup is a way to talk about the kind of diversity and unity that uh, Jesus wants to bring to his church and, and eventually this world. That's what we'll see in heaven too. But we're a salad, not a soup means this. So if you make a salad, which I make a lot of salads, I don't eat a lot of salads. I make a lot of salads because my wife eats like I saw she eats a salad. And so, you know, I, I'll do lettuce, right? And you see that and the tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and all this stuff. And, and it creates this unified, wonderful thing. But you can still see and all the diversity, too. Does that make sense? So it's a, so a soup. It maybe has a lot of diversity, but you put it in the pot, boil it, it just kind of becomes this, you know, this, it all becomes the same. And what you see in the, in, in what Jesus is doing in the church and even what heaven will be like, um, in, in heaven, the pictures of heaven that John gives us in the book of Revelation is still diversity and unity. So there's every tongue and tribe and nation and color and culture that, that are there because it's this beautiful mosaic that is both diverse and unified at the same time. And that's Jesus's dream for his church to be a place of diversity and unity. And the deeper statement in our DNA statement, they all have like a subtitle. We are intentionally diverse. That's what that means as a church. We're intentionally diverse, believing that the mix of generations, ethnicities and cultures helps create the rich and surprising unity Jesus prayed for in John 17. So as a church, we're intentionally doing church more difficult than you have to, well, because we think that's what Jesus wants, but we don't want to be a mono-generational church or a mono-ethnic church or a mono-cultural church. We want to be multi all those things because we want to be the church of Jesus's dream that he prayed for in John 17. And so let's look at John 17. So when Jesus was on this planet, he prayed for you if you've come to believe in Jesus. And I know not everybody has yet, but if you are a Jesus follower, he actually prayed for you. This is the one prayer we have that we know about that was written in the Bible where he prayed for you. And he prayed for you in light of and concern of those who do not yet believe. And so some of you may be in that in that category. But here's what Jesus said. May they. So there he's talking about those who would come to believe is what in the rest of the prayer. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know those who don't believe yet that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Jesus's provision for a skeptical world that would come to believe that, yes, Jesus is God who came to the world to connect. What Jesus is praying, what he's saying is the way a watching skeptical world will take a second look at Jesus is if this happens. And that is if we as a church community, if we as a community will be so, as diverse as we are, would be so unified that it would be remarkable enough that a watching world would look on and say, wow, where does that happen? 
Not just the kind of unity that happens when everybody's alike and together. That's normal. But the kind of community where you have diversity and they're like, like people who don't even shouldn't even like each other, but they love each other. And they're this new community. And where does that happen? It's so that a watching world would look on and look at the way church does community in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multicultural way. Look at that unity and say, wow, I don't get everything they believe about Jesus, but you got to find out what's going on over there. And that's Jesus's dream for his church. That's what he prayed for. And that's who we want to be as a church increasingly. And my guess is for most of us in this room, you'd say, yeah, I'd love to be like that, too. I'd like maybe and you're invited to be part of helping us build that. But even if you're not in church to have that kind of mentality is how we become the solution, not the problem. But today, as we look, we're going to look back at the New Testament church and the story of the New Testament church, how Jesus very patiently helps build his dream from the beginning, which was more of a nightmare when it came to this issue of race and racism and culture and how God grows them to become a bigger picture of his dream church. It's a crazy story. We're going to look at the book of Acts from a race perspective and a cultural perspective. But it's also our story today, as we're going to see. Because the things that were holding the early church back from becoming the dream church that they eventually did become um, are the same things that hold us back. And I want us to be really open as we're going to identify a couple of things. I would see like they're kind of like glue traps that keep us that get us stuck and they're subtle. We don't even know we're stuck and we get stuck. And I want us to be open that, hey, maybe I'm stuck. Or maybe God wants to stretch me more than I'm being stretched. And we're going to see that at work and see that at play as we tell the New Testament story. So we're going to tell the story of the first 20 years of the church from a race perspective. And uh, all the way from the book of Acts, uh, which is a book in the New Testament that that talks about it. So remember Jesus' dream for the church, right? John 17. But where Jesus has to start in year one of the church is they've got a long way to go. Because the early church in the, was, was based in Jerusalem, and 100% of the church were Jewish Christians. Okay, And the reason is because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? And so Christianity starts right then. And their job was to reach all the nations, all the cultures, all the ethnicities. But right now, they're just one race, one ethnicity. And, uh, and not only that, but they have a race problem. Because as Jewish Christians, as the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they look at the nations, their word for it was the goyim, the Gentiles. They look down their nose at the other nations. By the way, the Gentiles also look down their nose on the Jewish people. But the reason Jews, the Jewish people at the time did is that was God's chosen people. Right? They were God's chosen people to be a light to the nations. Now, they got the fact we're chosen, which means we're special, They kind of missed, hey, you're chosen so you can serve the nations. You can reach the nations. You can let the nations know how they can connect to God. God decided to have as a light to all the nations, choose one nation. And he told them in the Old Testament, I didn't choose you because you're good or great or all that special because you're not. I chose you because you're a little dinky. And that's the way I like to do things is use, you know, little things to do big things. And your job is to reach it. But that by the time Jesus came. They had elevated themselves and they looked down their nose at the goyim, at the Gentiles, even saw them as unclean and, and messed up and dirty. You didn't eat with them. You didn't relate to them in a certain way. Like they were like, ooh, cooties. OK. And so that's that's what he has to start with. I mean, that's a big problem. And for the first 10 years of the church, the church is all Jewish Christians. And 
And they're all staying right there in Jerusalem, too. Now, the mission that he had given the disciples when he started the church, he said, I want you to, Matthew 28, go into all the world, right, and, and preach the good news to the nations. But they're not going to all the world. They hang out in Jerusalem. And there's a reason for that. Because when they hear reach the world, they hear reach the world of Jews, not reach the world of Gentiles. And there are Jews that are scattered throughout the whole world. And it's pretty easy to reach Jews staying in Jerusalem because they would have to come to the temple for these pilgrimage feasts. So you could reach the world and be right there in Jerusalem. So God has a lot to have to challenge and change. So that's year one to year 10. All, all Jewish Christians, all same race, same culture. Year 10, something significant happens, really significant happens. A Gentile, non-Jewish person becomes a Christian. His whole household. Isn't that shocker? Like, you know, and it's this guy named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, a Roman officer. And Peter, I mean, it has to be in a dramatic way. God does this whole dream thing and tells him, you got to go to this guy. And he shares the good news of Jesus. Guy becomes a Christian, this whole thing. And when Peter comes back to tell the church about it, you might think they'd be, oh, man, this is so cool. But they don't say that. You know what they say? You went into the house of a Gentile and ate with him. That's what they said. And so they have to, there's some turbulence. They have to work through that. Then year 12, another massive development happens. Because in year 12, uh, God, well, there's this, God, I don't know if God sends her, it just happens, but there's a massive persecution against Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, in Judea, the area around Jerusalem. And they have to run for their lives, scatter for their lives. And so when they run for their lives and they go different places to escape the persecution, they take the message of Jesus with them. And most of the places they went, they just found other Jews in those places and, you know, shared the good news with them. But there's a group that goes to Syria. You ever hear of Syria? Right, a neighbor to Israel. And they go to Syria, this town called Antioch, and they share the good news of Jesus with Gentiles, with people outside the Jewish race and, and culture. And so they share, and a whole bunch of Gentiles now come to know Jesus. And all of a sudden, really quickly, Antioch becomes this really big, mostly Gentile church. And again, you might think that the church in Jerusalem would be like, oh man, this is awesome, this is so cool. But that's not what they're thinking. So they send Barnabas, one of their leaders, to say, Barnabas, you got to go check this out because don't let them mess up Christianity, pretty much. It's kind of the feel you get. Like, you know, nip it in the bud. Make sure you help them understand. Okay, if they can become Christians, they got to come Jewish first. They got to do it a Jewish way. And so they send Barnabas to kind of, you know, make sure they do it right, lay down the law. But Barnabas was the wrong kind of person to choose if that's what they wanted. Because Barnabas was the kind of person, he would have had some of those same hang-ups too. In fact, we know he did early on um, in the story. But Barnabas was the kind of person who was open to God and open to new things that God was doing. And when he goes to Antioch and he sees what God is doing through these Gentiles, through these uh, these other cultures and races, and this new way of church, this new way of Christianity, he's delighted. He can't believe it. And it feels so much better than the legalism he was stuck with in Jerusalem and and that deal. And he's just like, man, this is amazing. And so the way he forms the church, this is the leadership team of the church. And this is 12 years into the church story. You have Antioch and it's the first multiracial, multicultural church. Here's the leadership team. Among the prophets and teachers of the church of Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man. Lucius from Cyrene, Manan, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul, or the Apostle Paul. 
So you have this mix of Jews and Gentiles on the leadership team, including a guy named Simeon. And I love him because he's like, yeah, my name's Simeon, but you can call me the black man, uh, which I think is cool. What a cool guy. Right. And because uh, he was from Africa, likely. So it would be unusual for him to be in Syria. So he was, uh, and so you've got these guys. So the first time you have a multicultural, multiracial church. And Paul and Barnabas are there, part of the team. And then the huge development that happens next, year 18. So year 12, you've got this Antioch church that flourishes, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Year 18, God decides now it's time for the first missionary journey to start churches in the Gentile world. And he waits 18 years because he's got to wait for Antioch to develop. I don't believe God wanted to multiply the Jerusalem DNA, the culturalism and racism of Jerusalem. He has to wait until you've got Antioch, a multicultural salad, not a soup kind of church. And from there, Paul and Barnabas are sent out. They start churches all over uh, parts of the Roman Empire. These Gentiles, avalanches of Gentiles come to know Jesus. And now you have just just all these. So they come back to tell the church at Antioch after their journey. This is so amazing. And the church at Antioch is like, wow, this is really cool. Look at all these Gentiles who've come to know Christ. But then the Jerusalem church hears about it. How do you think they feel? They feel scared. They feel nervous about it. And here's what happens. Some people from the Jerusalem church... Acts 15, 1, right when they get back and they share their report, certain people came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, to Antioch, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So they came to say, look, you got to be like us if you're going to be saved. You got to be Jewish before you can be Christian. You got to you got to be circumcised. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, what circumcised is, just Google it. Um, actually, don't. That, that could be that could ruin your day. Um, just uh, just ask somebody in the lobby afterwards. Get to know them. You know, it'd be an interesting way to get to know. But but that was your entryway into Judaism as a Gentile. Uh, in the Old Testament era. So you would become a, you'd get circumcised and then you'd adopt all the Jewish customs. And so essentially what they were saying, there are two problems. One is a theological problem because now they're adding something to what it means to have a relationship with God, that you have to do this work of circumcision. That's a massive theological problem that Paul talks about in the book Galatians, that no, there's nothing you have to do. That salvation is not by our works, but by Jesus's work. And we just believe and receive by faith. All right. So that's a problem, but it's also a cultural problem. Because what they're saying is, yeah, you've got to be circumcised, which means you've got to become like us. You've got to you've got to become, you've got to do Christianity like us. And then, you, you know, you, we'll let you in. You'll be stinky and we'll kind of hold our nose. But you can be here if you become like us. That's kind of the way they were talking. And so Paul and Barnabas brings them into sharp dispute and debate. And what says sharp dispute with a word that's translated from the Greek sharp dispute means it's heated. Like this is, hey, you want to go back behind the church right now? kind of sharp dispute and because a big deal and so they don't go behind the building they do they go to jerusalem and paul and barnabas decide hey you know what we're going to have it out but we're going to have it out with all the church leaders the gentile issue and what god is doing and how jewish you have to be and so this is year 19 they have this meeting called the jerusalem council and this is the meeting we're going to focus on today and we're going to see how god moves them forward but how they also are a little stuck so that we can understand where we tend to get stuck. 
So year 19 is this meeting called the Jerusalem Council. And you have all the bigwigs. Imagine this meeting where you have all the disciples, you know, the apostles that were leading the church and all the big leaders of the church. Right? And, and here's what they're focused on. Can Gentiles, which is all the races outside of uh, Jews, can Gentiles be saved if they aren't circumcised? And do they have to live like Jews to be Christians? That's the big question of the Jerusalem Council, this big meeting. So Luke, who writes the book of Acts, was there and he reports, he, he, tell, he gives us a play-by-play of the meeting. And he kind of writes it like a play-by-play, so we'll, I'll just have to summarize it because we don't have time to read it all. And so here's what happens. And, and like a play-by-play, it's like, you know, Luke, if he was, you know, play, uh, announcing the game, if it was a game, he'd be like, first, uh, first at bat are the Jewish legalists. And our Christian Jewish legalists. And, uh, and so they get up and they share their perspective. Why they believe Gentiles uh, can come into the faith, but they have to be like Jews first. They have to be circumcised and so on, adopt the customs. And, and then, uh, you know, next to bat, the apostle Peter. And essentially, I'll summarize what Peter says. Essentially, what Peter says is this. And this is my, okay, my paraphrase or what I think Peter was saying. But he's, he said, hey, look, we're doing this debate. As if we think God's waiting for us to know what to do. Like he's waiting for us to have this question figured out so that he'll know what to do. But you realize he's already, he's already doing this. He's already answering this question. Like you realize, right, with Cornelius and now all these other people that he's already saving people without circumcision. And he's already pouring out his Holy Spirit, which is his, the presence of God in a person's life in really dramatic ways, without them going through all these Jewish customs, that God's already moving on without us. We're acting like he's waiting for us to know what to do. He's actually doing it, and we probably should catch up. And then next on the plate were Paul and Barnabas. And read how Luke talks about this, because I think it's really significant. So now it's Paul and Barnabas' turn to talk about it. It says, the whole assembly... All these big wigs of the church, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. What we're going to see in this meeting is everybody seems to go, the whole church goes a long way forward in this journey of dealing with their racism and culturalism and so on. They, they, they go a long way, not all the way, but they go a long way. And the reason they go a long way, even those who had a lot of hangups of racism and so on, the reason they do, I mean, give them credit, is because they do something unusual. They become silent and they listen. We've lost that. You know, in our culture, one of the reasons the divisions are so deep and just getting deeper is we don't get quiet and listen to people that we disagree with anymore. And so what happens is when you just in our culture, if you disagree, be like, hey, I'm smart. I'm right. They're stupid. They're wrong. So why should I listen? I already know what they're going to say. And then we just surround ourselves to people who agree with us and we get our news or information from people who agree with us. And we just have our own little universe and we don't listen to people outside that who might very well have something to say that we need to hear that would change our perspective. So we talk about people, but not to people. We don't listen. And that's a big problem. And give them credit because they didn't do that. In fact, in in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Solomon says, hey, wise people listen. Fools don't. 
And it's so easy. In our, we, we've just gotten really foolish. And we need to be wise enough to listen. Just like Jesus said, we're to even love our enemies. Which, I mean, minimally is to just try to consider things from their point of view. And so the whole assembly became silent as they listened. And Paul and Barnabas tell about, hey, let me tell you about what God is doing among the Gentiles. We'll just tell you what he's doing, what he's up to. And again, we better catch up. And then a guy named James, uh, who's a big wig in the church. James wrote the book of James. He was also like the key leader of the New Testament church. And James also happened to be the brother of Jesus, like he was Jesus's little brother. I mean, can you imagine being Jesus's little brother growing up in that home? You know, always being compared to, you know, your parents are like, why can't you be more like your brother? Have you seen his room? You know, I know his room's perfect. You know, I know he gets a hundred on every test. I know, you know, you right. But, and so James, so he's and you, like, he's, he's a big guy. All right. And he gives the final word in part because he's leader, but he, he gives the final word. And basically what he says is, Hey, you know, these guys are right. Peter and Paul and Barnabas, God is already doing what he's doing. Among the Gentiles. He's not waiting for us. And we should have expected it anyway. Because he quotes some Old Testament passages. That, that point to in the Old Testament. That, that this is what God would do. And we should have been looking for it. And then he gives his conclusion. And it's a compromise. It's, it starts out great. And then gets a little bit weird. But it's a compromise. It's my judgment therefore. That we should not make it difficult. For the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's a massive statement. This is what he's saying is we're expecting Gentiles to be like us. Maybe that's messed up. Uh, maybe we, we shouldn't be that way. Maybe, you know, God who made it completely easy for people to come to God. Why are we making it hard? Why are we adding things on top of that? And this is really important for us, too, because any religious group will we don't even know we're doing it can easily just in the way we start doing church or the way we start doing our thing make it difficult for people who are turning to God and not even realize it. And then he concludes, this is like, this is where it gets a little bit weird. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So that's what they do. They send this letter out to the Gentiles. And essentially what it says, okay, yeah, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised. And all the Gentile guys were like, yeah. You know, and then um, but then it, it says no sexual immorality, which there's a lot of sexual immorality in the Gentile in the in. The, so that I mean, that's a biblical thing. That's good. But the other ones are where it gets a little bit weird because it's about food. It's basically saying, hey, don't eat blood. Like who does that? Who eats blood? Um, don't eat meat that has been offered to idols and don't eat meat from animals that have been strangled rather than slit. Like, you know, where they are bled, like where they're bled out. And that's because in Leviticus and stuff, it talks about there's a lot of blood sensitivity and that's their culture. That's what they've grown up with as Jews. You don't eat meat like that. So essentially, it's like, you know, prime rib that's, you know, juicy and red, like they're saying, don't do that. Don't eat that. It's got to be not so bloody. You're like, why is that? Why is that a big deal? You know, and 2000 years later, you look back and you think, yeah, that's really not a big deal. Like that's kind of that's kind of silly. Because other people's legalism is always silly. Our own isn't, but other people. And so you look at that and you think, yeah, that's, that's kind of messed up. Um, but they came a long way. All right, so that's the, that's, and there's reasons for that we'll look at. So that's the story. It's a really important story to understand. 
Uh, this is year 19 in the life of the church that God is working on. And what we're going to see is, hey, there's a couple of things at play here. There's a couple of things at work that held them back that took 20 years for them to begin to get it. And they're the same things that tend to hold us back. And I want us to be open to these to say, hey, I, I think these may be at work in my life, too, because I believe they are in all of our lives. And to me, they're kind of like two glue traps that, you know, as you're trying to make progress, you get stuck. And they're so subtle, though, you don't even know it. And the first one is right here, a superiority complex. That was going on then 2,000 years ago. It goes on and, and it's going on in our hearts, too. And I know some of you see that and think, a superior, I don't have a superiority complex. I mean, I know other people, most people do, but not me. Right. Well, you already have one right there. Right. You think you're better than us. So here's a and, and I don't mean like a personal thing, like because we're talking about race and culture. I'm not saying that we think, oh, I'm better than you because I'm this race and you're that race. I don't mean that. I mean, the way culture develops, the way that, that we just have this natural feeling, the way I view the world, because of the way I've been shaped by my culture is the one that's right. That's the superiority thing. Um, because all of us are shaped by our culture, whether you're a minority culture or a majority culture, it doesn't matter. We all have a cultural superiority complex. And that means because, because it just shapes. We grow up in a culture and that shapes the way we view the world of what's right, what's beautiful, what's good, what makes sense, how you relate. Like that's just the way it should be. Everybody should be that way. Why would everybody be that way? We naturally have that. The thing is, is that when you are the majority in a culture, like the Jewish Christians then or white people in our culture, when you're the majority... Your cultural preferences become the rules because you make the rules and you expect everybody else to adjust. But they're just cultural differences. Let me give a couple of examples of cultural differences and then I'll make the majority minority point here a little more. So here's just a couple of cultural differences to illustrate them. Um, just to make it clear, I'm a white guy. Some of you wondering, I wonder what he is. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I grew up in the South. Right. And even as a white guy in the South, I have white guy friends in other parts of the country. And we have we grew up in different cultures and see the world differently. And I kind of think I'm right. So, for example, so I, I have some friends in New York, you know, New York City. A number of years ago, going up there for the first time and uh, as an adult and walking around. And I grew up in the South where you're taught to look people in the eye and say hi and smile, whether you know them or not. Right. That's the way I grew up in New York. Doesn't work that way. So we, so I'm walking around New York and I'm like the welcome wagon in New York, you know, and so I'm like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, uh, hey, how are you? Or, Have a nice day. You know, do all that stuff. And it's hard to look people in the eye there because they don't like eye contact very much. So you got to kind of, you know, do that. And so my my friend finally just said, hey, would you would you stop it? I'm like, stop what? Like, stop being a weirdo. I'm like, what do you mean being here? All I'm doing is talking to people. And he's like, I know, but you're freaking people out. Like, it's going to be on the news. Like, stop it. And, uh, and, and I'm just thinking, right, well, i just teaching people how to be friendly. Like, you guys need to learn how to be friendly. That's just a cultural thing. That's all it is, right? Who's right? I think I am. <laughs> but he thinks he is, right? Or uh, I have a lot of African friends. Um, I mean, in Africa. You know, so uh, because we do a lot of projects in Africa and I've had the privilege of traveling there a lot. And and so whether it's Kenya or Uganda or Ethiopia or I just got back from Egypt not too long ago. And and there there's a, a number of cultural differences. But one of those is about time. And this is true, not just of Africa, but most other cultures of the world outside of the West, um, where in, in their world, uh, relationships are more important than the calendar or the schedule. Whereas in my world, in the Western world. 
schedule is actually more important. And here's what I mean by that. So if we say we're going to have a meeting at seven o'clock as a Westerner, when am I going to get there? 645, right? Or yeah, before seven o'clock. Amen. My African friends, however, it may be 730, 745, maybe eight. So by the time I get there, I'm kind of like you inconsiderate, right? You know, but again, relationships are so on the way to our meeting. They saw somebody they haven't seen in a long time and they're not just going to walk past them and ignore them. Right. They're going to catch up and connect them because relationships are more important. And so they do. all, And then they get there when they can get there because they're not going to shortchange a relationship to be there on time. Right. And for me, if I'm on my way to a meeting and I see somebody and they're like, hey, I go to your church and I got some real problems in my marriage and all that. I'd be like, interesting, but I got a meeting, you know, so. Right. And so just so who's right. Um, or, uh, or my, you know, I have a number of Asian friends, you know, from, and I'm talking about uh, like people from Asian countries, from Eastern countries that have a, a different perspective of how to get to a pointed issue, an issue of disagreement or are calling somebody out who maybe didn't do something they said they would do. And, and if you're in a meeting like that with a group of people from Asian cultures, what I've experienced is that rather than being direct of saying, hey, you said you're going to do that and you didn't. Uh, that's a problem. You, instead, you talk around it a lot and you talk around it until that person it, it gives the opportunity for the person to figure it out, to kind of save face, to be like, uh oh, um, yeah, I, I, I messed up. I'm sorry. Right now, who's right? It's just a cultural difference. I mean, I can keep going with examples like this, but you get the idea. And like I said a few minutes ago, it becomes an issue because whoever's in the majority gets to make the rules. And that's what well, that's what's right. And everybody else just needs to adjust. And if you're in a minority culture in America, in this country, you feel that. You, you have to adjust all the time. Those of us in the majority are, can be really insensitive to that. Because we're like, well, if you have to adjust, it's, you should because it's better. It's not better. Just different, right? But, but you're always adjusting, always adjusting, always adjusting. That's what was happening in the Jerusalem church. Part of what was happening is you had the majority culture, the Jewish Christians that were basically creating a kind of community that said, you Gentiles can be here. You've just got to be like us. And then you can be here. We'll, we'll tolerate you. You can be here. We'll welcome you. But we're not going to change the way we do stuff. Like, we're going to do it our way. And, and it's better. You just need to be, do it like us. That's not the dream that Jesus prayed for in John 17. That's not the kind of community we're trying to develop as a church either. Uh, Antioch is more of the dream. Antioch was a multicultural, multiracial church where they together were leading together and forming this new kind of community together. They were forming a multicultural community, not one that said, hey, you can be here. You just got to be like us. Hey, no, let's a bunch of different people saying, let's create something new. Do you feel the difference? See the difference? It's a very different way to do church. And we're on a journey, right? But the way we're trying to do church is we have a diverse and increasingly diverse leadership team, increasingly diverse staff, increasingly diverse stage and so on. As we plan things is to say, hey, let's together not plan something that's monocultural, but that's or build something that's monocultural, but multicultural and and therefore new. And it's a really cool way to do church. And it's the Jesus way we believe to do church. It's not necessarily the easiest way to do church. Which brings me to the next glue trap, because this is what's easy. And that is a mono, that all of us have to fight a monocultural magnet. 
All of us as sinful human beings, just the way we are, will tend to be, we'll attract, we'll be attracted to people who are just like us, right? Because we agree with each other. We see things the same way, right? We're comfortable with each other. And it's okay, obviously, to have friends who are like us. I mean, that's good too. But if that's all we have, that's a problem. A monocult, that monocultural magnet is a dangerous thing that's in all of us. It's dangerous, certainly for a church, because Jesus' dream is multiculture, not monoculture. But it's also dangerous for us as an individual. Because if we live a monocultural life and just surround ourselves with people who are like us, we'll be really skewed and messed up in our thinking and not know it. Because we never have the opportunity to see ourselves from another perspective and realize, oh, that's kind of messed up. And that's another part of what was happening in the early church. So at the Jerusalem Council, here they have this meeting about the Gentiles. What do we do with all these other races that are now becoming Christians? And what do we do? They're, they're talking about Gentiles. But in that meeting, did you notice who was the group of people that were not invited to that meeting? The Gentiles. They're talking about the Gentiles. But they're not talking to Gentiles. That would have been really cool if Paul had said, hey, why don't we invite Simeon, you know, who likes to be called the black man? Let's bring him and, and let him tell his story. That would have been pretty awesome. But that's not what happened. Instead, they talk about Gentiles, not with Gentiles. But they come a long way. Well, you've got to give them credit for that. They, but they still end up in kind of a weird place. And I think part of the reason they end up in a weird place is they were talking about people and not to people. Like on the food hang-up thing. See, I think from what I could tell in the story, the Antioch church, those Jewish people like Paul and Barnabas and the Antioch church, didn't have the same food hang-ups as what came out of the meeting with all Jews talking about Gentiles. And the reason they didn't have the same food hang-ups is because they were living a multicultural life. They were leading and doing life with other cultures. So, for example, it could have gone like this. Let's say in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are eating with their leadership team and somebody, and somebody serves prime rib. Right. So they got juicy meat. And Barnabas or somebody or Paul's like, oh, wait a minute, you you can't do that. And the Gentiles like, well, why can't we do that? Well, you know, because the Old Testament law says about blood and you got uh, I thought you said we weren't under the Old Testament law. Well, yeah, that's that's right. So then why would it be a problem? I guess it's not a problem. Pass the prime rib. Let's go. You know, right. Be like, (laughs) all right, Fogo to chow. Like, here we go. And or however you pronounce that. And so they. um and right, right, because that's what happens when you're in a in that kind of multi perspective, as opposed to just a monoculture. And, and the same thing is true for you and me. If you and I are living a monocultural life and we build a monocultural church, we'll be messed up in ways we don't even realize because we never have the opportunity to see ourselves from the outside looking in from another cultural perspective. That makes sense. And so in. And it is just so easy to do. We have to resist the monocultural magnet. So just ask yourself right now, how diverse is your relational circle? In terms of culture, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of viewpoint on life, just how, how monocultural, how mono is your circle versus multi? And if it's pretty mono, I'm not talking about acquaintances, like, oh, I know somebody. I got a neighbor. I don't know their name, but I got a neighbor. You know, I don't mean that. I mean, like relationships, you know, like friendships that you pursue. And here's the cool thing. You and I live in an environment that is so multiracial and cultural and, and, and ethnic in North Texas. I mean, it's a huge advantage 
to a Jesus way of life and to our church to build something beautiful, which God is doing. He's working on us and helping us. But it's such a huge advantage. And let's take advantage of that. Even this summer, think of, man, who could I build a bridge to? Who could I learn from? Who could I reach out to that is different from me? And uh, I mean, wow, what an opportunity we have. Because this is a big, beautiful world and yet has a lot of problems. And God calls us as his church and as his people to be part of the solution. And even if you're not a Jesus follower at this point, I think you'd say, yeah, I want to be part of the solution. And it's pretty cool thinking about what God can do in the world through the church. Because when it works, it is a beautiful, powerful thing. When you could look at a community of faith that is so diverse, a salad, not a soup, so diverse and so unified at the same time, who don't just like each other, but love each other and are serving together and are learning from each other. It's beautiful. And that's what God is building. We're not there yet, but that's what he is building. And that's what we get to be part of. And let's let me just challenge us just to keep leaning in and keep being open and playing catch up with what God's doing. And, and, And try to avoid getting stuck. And so we're going to pray and we're going to pray for our church. But I also want to pray for us as individuals just to be open, all of us to be open. God, where am I stuck? Am I stuck with this monocultural magnet or God, where is this superiority complex in terms of the way I view the world or my culture and all that? It's just cultural. It's it's not biblical. It's just cultural. God, where am I? Where am I messed up in my thinking and and where do I need to learn and where do I need to expand my relational world? Let's let's bow our heads together because I know God will help us do this. You know, like I say all the time, prayer is just talking to God in our own words. And you just do this in your heart. But maybe just right now, as you think about this broken, splintered world, if you're, if you're bold enough, just say, God, help me be part of the solution. And, and would you pray for our church that we could become the, the dream kind of church that Jesus prayed for? And then just ask him. One of the things that God will do is convict us of what's broken in our lives that he wants to help and heal. And just say, God, where, where am I broken in this? Where am I stuck? And then ask him for a next step. Say, God, what, what could be a next step this summer? Who could I reach out to? Who could, how, what could I do? And with whatever God brings to mind, then just commit to do it. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. When I think of the New Testament story from 2,000 years ago, it takes 20 years just to get to that meeting. Which tells me you've got a lot of patience for people like me, too. But God, I pray you would help me, help all of us, help our church continue to grow, continue to progress, to be the, the dream church that Jesus prayed for. And for us to be those kind of people as well. In Jesus' name. Amen.